proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am your host. I am also the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen. And each week, we have confessional brothers come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have uh, author Chris Pobletti. Chris, how you doing, man? Good. How are you? Chris, could you give our listeners just a quick 30-second bio of who you are and what you've been up to? Sure, yeah. Uh, so uh, I live in South Orange County, California. Uh, I am currently on the front end of a church planning residency with a, a church called Village Church in Irvine. Uh, not that Village Church, but the other Village Church uh, with the other Pastor Matt. So um, I'm on starting a, a church planning residency, though, with, uh, with Village Church, which is an, an independent uh, non-denominational church, uh, but our goal is to plant a uh, confessional uh, Baptist church just about 15 minutes down the road uh, from there, and uh, we're looking for a launch sometime in 2017. Awesome. Chris wrote a book called Two Fears, which we will probably get to later in our podcast, and if you are uh, a reader, I recommend you pick it up and uh, it, as it describes uh, the good fear of fearing God and the importance of that. As well as Chris, we have another guest on our show. It is my dear friend, JT Tarter. JT, how you doing, man? Doing great. JT, do you mind sharing a little bit about who you are and what you've been up to? Yeah. Um, so I am married, have two kids. Um, and right now, my wife and I serve at a Southern Baptist church. Um, and, uh, we've, we've served in a couple different contexts and as far as, uh, churches and a Presbyterian church and non-denominational church and now in a Baptist church. Um, so I'm kind of like a theological mutt, if you will. Uh, but I'm trying, my wife and I are kind of in the midst of really trying to dig in and figure out specifically theologically where we line up, but we have a heart to, uh, eventually plan a church. Um, we don't know location yet. We don't know, um, exactly where that'll be. And so we're definitely way farther back than I think even Chris, you probably are, um, or it definitely sounds like where you are, but, um, but yeah, so we have a heart to plan a church, um, eventually, um, and still trying to figure out exactly, um, denominationally where, where that lines up. And also as far as where specifically God might be calling us. Thanks, guys. And so what I want to do in this podcast is something a little different than we've done in the previous ones, where we're going to talk about the topic of church planting and the need for confessional churches. And so I'm going to start this uh, podcast off with this question, guys. Why do the confessions even matter to two young guys like yourselves? Chris, you want to take that first? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I, I think um, there's enough evidence that we see from uh, the New Testament scriptures that, that basically implies the use of, of confessions. You got, you got Paul in his last letter to Timothy. He exhorts him right there in the first chapter. He says, you know, follow the pattern of sound words that, that you've heard from me. Um, twice uh, in the book of Hebrews, the, the, the author says, you know, let us hold fast to our confession. Like this is something that, that the church 
needed to be doing back then, and it's implied that this is something. This is a this is a pattern and a, and a rhythm that we should see uh, throughout uh, the New Testament church uh, it, for for all ages. And so, um, I think um, you know having a uh, a, a, a robust, uh, defined uh, confession of faith uh, that has historically uh, stood the test of time um, can can really help out uh, a local church, uh, especially in, in terms of church planning. Because, um, you know, the historic confessions, what they do is they give us a public face of, of, of what we believe. Um, rather than having maybe like you know, two or three short paragraphs. You've got you've got pages of of articles on on here's the system of of theology that we believe the Bible to teach. And so, if it's if it's published and if it's been around for centuries, um, it, it's also up for for public scrutiny. Um, and so that gives us a certain sense of of, of clarity in in what we believe and um, what disciples should believe. If the call of the, of, of the church, and especially as a, in terms of, of church planting, is to make disciples of all nations, um, it begs the question, you know, what should those disciples believe? What should they confess? What does it mean for them to hold fast to our confession, as the author of Hebrews says? And so I think it just has a lot of great implications for us uh, ecclesiologically, missiologically, uh, and of course, as I mentioned, in, in terms of discipleship um it's interesting like if you if, if you talk to um like if you were to ask me a couple years ago before i really um subscribed to historic confession you know like 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 what do you believe sort of like what like what brand of christianity do you believe what do you believe about about baptism what do you believe about ecclesiology and and all this stuff like like i i, I didn't have a, a document to to break that down um i'd say you know go read this book and go read that book. But, you know, when you read this book, only read these parts or, you know, I don't agree with this guy's view over here, but you can listen to him on, on this other part. Um, and so we'd point people to systematic theologies in that sense. But, um, the nice thing about a historic confession is, um, you don't have commentary. You just have a summary of the Bible's doctrine as it's laid out in the pages of scripture. Here's what we believe the scriptures to teach, um, and and this is the pattern of sound words that, that we want to hold fast to. It's interesting you say that because I've noticed in a lot of young church planners, uh, they have what I call the shotgun blast mm-hmm. approach to their doctrine. They've kind of piecemealed it together. They've taken this from Wayne Grudem. They've taken this from John Stott. They've taken this from uh, you know a missiologist like a, 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 a Timothy Keller, but um, systematically, they're not consistent. And that's exactly one of the things that I see as far as a benefit to the confessions. JT, let me ask you this. Why do you think a lot of the younger guys, um, is it just that they don't know about the confessions? Or do you think they just have more of a, a bent towards uh, statements of faith? And if so, why? Right. Um, you know, <clears throat> speaking as one of those younger guys that, uh, you know, I, I growing up in a church that was confessional, um, I think for, you know, for me sp- specifically, I didn't appreciate the confessions. I think because, um, I didn't, nobody ever explained to me how valuable and important they were. Um, we were taught to, to understand them and to learn them and to even memorize them. Um, but nobody really expressed how 
important and vital they are to the daily life of the church. And so I think a lot of young guys either they don't have any experience, especially with, with the wave of, of the non-denominational movement and other things like that. Most churches, a lot of churches don't don't even have a confessional, you know, a confession they adhere to. So either you have young guys that grew up in uh, a church background that didn't embrace confessions. And so literally young guys don't know what they are. Um, or they grew up in a church that maybe did hold to a, a confession of some sort, but uh, it really wasn't... Um, discussed it really wasn't taught and really and the value of it was very um I don't know, lacking i guess as far as the the pastors and whatnot how they uh, encouraged them to to look into it so um yeah i don't know no that's good that's good uh chris let me let me follow that question up with this question to you in your context in california um my my uh uh vision of california is that it's not very confessional it, it appears to be um, the churches that I know that that are over there the don't seem to have a strong confessional base. It seems to be more of a, a, a statement of faith and holding up the Bible and say, this is our confession kind of thing. So how does a guy like you um, come out of California and be confessional? Yeah, you know, that's that's a really good question. And that's a, that's actually a pretty fair assessment of of, of California and, and especially Southern California where, where I live. Um, you know, we, there our our church or our church, I'd say like our, our culture, if you were to look at the, uh, sort of the evangelical landscape of, of Orange County and, and, and Southern California, um, I would describe it as, I, I think it was Ray Ortland who, who, who first said it this way, but, um, I, I would kind of describe our, uh, evangelical landscape as like over-churched and, and under-gospeled. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a ton of churches, and you're right, like a lot of them aren't gospel-centered. A lot of them are not confessional churches. Uh, but, but for, for me, um, the, it, it really came down to, to digging into um, sort of my, my Baptist roots, Baptist heritage, and just seeing uh, this rich uh, history of of confessionalism, um, when I when I first got introduced to uh, Reformed theology, um, like the old catechisms and, and, and confessions, the Westminster and, and the Heidelberg um, were um, hugely just uh, influential uh, to me. They had a great impact, I should say, on on my life, even devotionally speaking. And then. Um, from there, I you know I heard about the the Second London Confession of 1689, and uh, eventually decided to adopt that historic confession as as my own. And um, it's it's really interesting. Like as I as I talk to people uh, in our community, and even from churches, non-confessional churches that I used to serve at, um, and 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 people in the community, new believers, non-believers, uh, people who grew up in the church, when when I paint a picture and a vision for a confessional church in South Orange County, it, it actually seems to really resonate with young people, um, for whatever reason. I don't hmm. I don't I don't know why that is. Maybe it's a disenchantment with the mega church movement and and sort of franchise Christianity, uh, but just bringing people down to and and reminding them that. Hey, you know that this faith that you confess, this faith that you believe in, um, like it's it's been around for centuries, and 
and people have believed this and they've, they've confessed this and, and professed this faith for, for centuries. And here's what they've said about that. Here are the things that they've, they've written about that. And here's how, how churches have been reformed by the scriptures and, 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 and how confessions and creeds have been, have been used uh, to keep the church uh, healthy and, and really unified um, on orthodox beliefs like throughout, throughout centuries. Um, like that, that story, the story of the church's history seems to really uh, resonate with, with young people. JT, you are in the uh, Detroit metro area where I am. Mm-hmm. And so my question to you is kind of uh, the far eastern Midwester, Midwesterner. <laughs> what does uh, confessionalism look, for, look like to you here in our contact? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it, I think it kind of runs the gamut. You know, I think you've got, um, you've got, it seems like you've got a growing network, you know, Aaron, just working with you, it seems like there's a growing network of guys that are really pumped about confessions, um, and different confessions. And, um, uh, but for, for me personally, I feel like the, you know, and not to, not to piggyback off of everything that, that Chris was saying, even though I agree with everything. Um, I think one of the biggest benefits of confessions, um, in, in our context, in any context is, um, is, is just like Chris said, building off of what, um, the historical church and the Orthodox church has believed for centuries. Um, and also the protection that it gives to the congregation, um, to know, you know, when they're listening to their pastor preach or teach the Bible, um, they, they have a source document to go back to and to know what they're getting themselves into whenever they're going to church and when they're, you know, um, becoming a member of whether it's a Presbyterian church or a confessional Baptist church. And, um, I know, especially in the, the Metro Detroit area, um, I, I, as I've visited churches, I never really know fully what I'm getting myself into, you know, as especially with statement of faith, you know, a lot of pe- a lot of church statement of faiths look exactly the same or they're, they're just cha- They just change the wording for their context. And um, what really turned me on to the confessions was just the clarity of going, being able to look at a church and know, okay, this is what they believe. This is what the pastors have taken their, their vows on. Um, and, and that gives me, um, just even as just a, a lay person going to church, huge, um, just benefit of being able to go into a church and, and, uh, and know what I'm going to be receiving and what my church actually believes. What do you guys think, and um, this is to both of you, what do you think the uphill battle is for you to plant a confessional church in your context? What does that look like, the uphill battle? Uh, I'll, I'll start. Um, I, I, I think the biggest pushback um, that I anticipate receiving is that um, confessions, especially detailed confessions of faith, like the Second London Confession, um, might seem too, too uh, like maybe divisive um, because you're saying, look, here's, here's what we believe uh, about the scriptures. Here's what we believe about the church and, and Christianity. And, and, and maybe like in, in holding to such a detailed confession of faith that you are, you are therefore um, alienating people who who do not buy into that or who, who don't quite understand it yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's so. good. That's good. I think um, the idea that 
people view the the creeds and confessions as divisive is absolutely accurate. What's funny is the creeds were meant to be uh, inclusive, not not exclusive, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, it was to bring Orthodox Christians together around the gospel and how they functioned. And yet today, people do see that. So I very much agree with you, JT. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you have. There's such a culture of you know, I've, I've heard somebody use the phrase, uh, you, you know, don't, don't, don't major in the minors, mm. you know, and don't make, don't make big deals out of, you know, don't make, don't make mountains out of molehills. Those different phrases have been used before. And, um, yeah, that just the division, they, a lot of people think that, um, the creeds are, are too exhaustive or the, the confessions are too exhaustive. And so, um, that it's basically that you're being divisive by taking positions on all of these things. And I think the thing, the point that, that I have to always come back to, and that I always come back to with people is that every pastor takes a position on these, these different positions or different issues or different theological questions. The only difference is that for me, because I'm adhering to a confession of faith, I am publicly saying, this is what I believe. This is what I adhere to. And people are able to hold me to that. Mm-hmm. Um, if I go to the pulpit and I preach and I say something, um, that is against the confession of faith of my church, my church can call me on it. They can come and say, Hey, what you said seems to contradict this in the confession of faith, whether that be you know, the London confessional or the Westminster or whatever it may be. Yeah. It's it definitely for sure that the confessions allow, and I'll use this phrase, empower the lady. Absolutely. It empowers Absolutely. the the lady in the pews to be able to say, we know what our pastor should be preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, there is great a great disadvantage when there is not that confession because then you have to rely on the pastor and he almost becomes a pope, if you will, Absolutely. in in the church. And I think the we've seen the problems repeatedly where pastors have that popish kind of uh, 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 style of leadership where everything they say everybody has to fall into and it becomes dangerous and even cult like when their doctrine is. Uh, led by one one individual which at times he can veer from historical orthodoxy and obviously that can be very dangerous so yeah what you guys are saying really resonates with me and my my experience let's let's talk a little bit about what um church planting why plant churches um we got two guys who both want to plant churches you're young guys you're obviously setting out and if i could say it this way it's late in the game i mean church planting now has been on the scene for for quite a while and you got guys like tim keller you got you got guys that have been doing this stuff and have had some success do we still need more churches to be planted i mean is that a real problem what do you you guys say to that chris yes (laughs) Y- y- yes. <laughs> um, um, I wasn't yeah. too sure. You both were kind of weak on that, so I'm wondering. I mean, is there anything I, I, else? I, I didn't want to be like the, plant the churches? first guy to I mean, answer every on, time, yeah. so I was like, <laughs> um, but but uh, absolutely, I I'd say that that yes, we 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 do need um, new churches, um, spe- specifically like uh, to speak in the in the, in, the, in my context, um, like in, in Orange County, specifically Southern Orange County, the. Um, the overwhelming majority of the population here is unchurched, and uh, a good chunk, like near fifty percent of the church population, is is Roman Catholic. And um, in in the particular city that that, that I live in, and so um, there you've got 
you've got all these people who are are, are unchurched or um, not part of, of, of a healthy, thriving, um, gospel-centered evangelical church um, who need churches. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a church on, it seems like, like every other block. Um, right next here. to the liquor store, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, there, there's, there are a lot of churches in South Orange County, um, but if we want to reach those people that are not going, going, currently going to a church, like we, we need more, more churches. I mean, you can make an argument that like, well, well, those existing churches, they, they just need to be healthier or they need to be more evangelistic or, um, you know, they, they just need, they just need to be more missional. Um, but but new churches, new church plants are by far um, better positioned to engage the new subcultures that are forming in in a community uh, because they don't have a cultural baggage themselves. Like like you'll never get a group of people um, like like when the elders of a church say, "Look, we're going to try and engage this new subculture that's emerging in, in, in our community." Like you are never going to get a group of people in a new church plant that are going to say. Well, I don't know if we feel comfortable about that because, because we've never done it that way, you know, because um, because you've never done anything anyway, you know, like like new church plants are 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 are, are better positioned to, um, while staying within confessional orthodoxy, just be um, innovative in their contextualization uh, to to engage uh, the new subcultures of an area um, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, um, I, I mean, I've got, I've got a friend out, out here who, who's, who's trying to, to, to talk to me about considering, you know, replanting a church rather than planting a church. And, um, it's been really fruitful discussion, but one of the things that has come up is that, um, you know, in, in areas around us where we've seen new churches planted and, and thriving, rather than taking life from the other churches in the area, like we actually see how those new church plants have actually like breathed new life in, into the surrounding churches. And so I, I think it's good for both um, the church plants, just faithfulness to, to make disciples, you know, and, and obedience to the great commission of Jesus. But um, it, it seems that, new church plants also have a positive effect on surrounding existing churches and sort of helping them get back on track with that. I, I don't know. Would you, know, you agree with that? I, I agree with that. And this, the, from this standpoint, we're a 113-year-old church. Mm -hmm. And in our uh, engagement back into mission, if you will, I found aligning ourselves with church planters who are out there has been one of the greatest uh, sources of encouragement, greatest sources of energy, um, thought, um, being uh, involved in the culture because they're constantly on the front lines. They have to gather a core group. They have to begin to uh, develop uh, cultivating the neighborhood and it got our old church thinking again about things they used to do 50 to 60 to 70 years ago and how can we do that now because neighborhoods change at least in our suburbs here where we're at uh, older people pass away or they move into retirement homes and young families come by those homes but a lot of these old churches don't continue to reach out and minister and bring that next generation in and so 
church plants become necessary to do that. And revitalization, well, it's good and it's important, and I'm part of that um, work here at First Presbyterian. I believe that it's a it's a two prong attack: church plants and revitalization working together. And I definitely agree with you, Chris, that uh, older churches benefit greatly if they're willing to partner with church plants. But to be honest, what we see a lot is a lot of older churches are very threatened by church plants. Oh, we got we got this block covered. We we got this city covered. You know, in my particular city, there's eighteen thousand people, and to believe my church can reach all eighteen thousand people. That's absurd. We need more church planters. We need more churches, even here in this uh, small suburb city. Yeah. JT, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that if the church is about evangel- evangelism and discipleship, mm-hmm. then the reality is, is that that is, I mean, anybody who's actually discipled anybody knows that it takes tons of time and you need you need to have smaller groups of people in order to make it happen. Um, and I, I just really, I really firmly believe that, that the church is moving towards back to the smaller church kind of uh, mentality or setup. You know, we, we've done the mega church. We've, we've experienced that. We've gotten to see um, some good fruit from it, but also a lot of the challenges of it and the things, the fruit that it doesn't bear. Um, and so, um, cause you know, the big thing with church planning, um, especially it seems like in the last 10 years is, well, you know, church planning is the most effective means to, to, for evangelism, for, for, for new converts, for new people to come to know Christ. And, uh, I think most churches that get, um, angry at church plants, I think, I think there's a huge need in the church planning community to go back to evangelism. I think there's a lot of church plants that tend to come into a place and they just start trying to amass any kind of, you know, as much as they're, they're, they're bringing together a core team, um, they're really not focused on evangelism. They're focused on getting different people that are already established in the faith to just join on with what they're doing rather than really having a heart for new, uh, new converts and people to come to know Jesus who don't know Jesus. And so, um, so, and one instance, I tend to understand why some churches don't like church plants, but, um, on the flip side, I think the whole conversation, the whole conversation about, you know, that is often had among church plants and older churches about, you know, oh, do we really need more churches is honestly, if you really sit down and think about it, it's pretty ridiculous. Like my wife and I, we used to live out in Seattle and, um, anybody who's been out in Seattle knows that you can stand on one corner, um, in, in, in the middle of the city of Seattle and you can see like four or five Starbucks like locations right from that one corner. I mean, there's Starbucks everywhere, like literally everywhere within a, a, a walk. And why? Because there's tons of people. There's people everywhere, you know. And the reality is if, if, if we're going to reach, um, just like Chris said, if we're going to reach tons of different types of people from all different kinds of, of backgrounds and, and different cultures and groups, we've got to have multiple expressions um, of the body of Christ in different places in order to effectively disciple, uh, do discipleship and evangelism, we've got to start thinking smaller and that's going to take smaller communities of faith and, and, and church plants. So now you two guys are aspiring church planners and you're also confessional guys and you're bringing the old and you're matching it with the new. And, you know, many would say, you know, can you really mix uh, new wine and old wineskins? And is that going to work? 
and yet you both really believe that confessionalism is an essential part of of what being and and a church is about and yet at the same same time you understand the need to be uh, uh doing things uh to reach the next gen the, the the next culture and so i just want to hear from from you guys what does it look like to be a confessional church plant and and i know that you haven't planted yet this is still in your head you're still working through this but help my listeners begin to think through that what does a confessional church plant look like that's a really good question um i'd say at, at its most basic and fundamental level, um, a, a confessional church plant has uh, an acknowledged uh, appreciation and uh, affirmation of of its his, of the church's historic heritage. Um, like I've I, I, I've heard, like you know, some some popular preachers. Um, especially like you know some of the guys in this area talk about how uh you know the the first reformation was about what we believe now we need a reformation for for what we do you know like like we've moved on from a reformation of what we believe now the church needs to be known for for what it does for for how it's engaged um for how it's reaching culture and changing culture and and um, transforming it, and so um, I, I, I just, I just don't think those two things could be in bo- divorced from each other. You know, yeah. like like you can't you can't fulfill the mission of Jesus without the message of Jesus. Um, and so I, I think what what the next generation um, needs uh, for the sake of its of its doctrinal health um, is. And but also for its for its missional calling is to is to return back to its historic roots. What is the faith that has been, um, you know, delivered once and for all, like to, like to the saints? You know, what is the the confession of, of faith that we hold fast to? What is the the sound pattern of the pattern of sound sound words that that we want to follow in? And so when when we go back to that and we understand like what it means to to obey all that Christ has taught. You know, that's in the Great Commission, like o- obey the teachings of Jesus, uh, to be baptized in the name of the Father and Son and, and, and the Holy Spirit. If that's what it means uh, to, to be disciples um, and to make disciples, um, then if, if that's what we feel missionally propelled to do is to make disciples, then like we, we need to know like what, what should these disciples not only believe, what it, the content of, of what they believe, but but the history of the family that that they're that they're being adopted into, and and to agree with you there that your your doctrine is always meant to be lived out. Mm-hmm. Too many do want to separate the doctrine from the action, and that divorce is not taught in Scripture. It, it, the idea of knowing is so that it can be lived out. As James, faith without works is dead. And uh, I think clearly that's a, a misnomer that many are falling into and saying, oh, we already had the, the reformation of theology. Now we need a reformation of action. And that's just only bringing churches that are preaching in, in many ways 
a false gospel, a gospel that isn't founded upon who Jesus Christ is and what he's come to do, because Jesus, for most of it, is left out of the message because it's all about action. And let's be real, we're not Christ. My works will never measure up to his works. My actions will never measure up to his actions. Even the nice things I do for my neighbor is not me atoning on the cross for their sin. That is Christ, and that's who I have to point back to. We celebrate Easter as a reminder of his work. So, um, yeah, that's. I think that's an important point is to remind that Jesus Christ came, and we're pointing back to that finished work, that historic work of Christ. Um, so, yeah, very, very good point there, Chris. JT, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, just I got to start answering first because Chris is just killing it. You know, just, <laughs> yes, yes and amen to everything. Just ditto what he said. <laughs> um, but I, I just really think, uh, you know, I remember whenever for Easter, uh, a lot of churches. Um, will quote the apostles creed and they'll begin with just the statement of, you know, dear Christian, what do you believe? You know, and they'll, they'll state the, the apostles creed. And, and that's where I feel like a confessional church plant. Um, that's, that's why a church plant needs to be confessional is the question, simple question of what do you believe? Um, what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about sin? What do you believe about the atonement? What do you be, believe about, um, hell, all those different, different, theological questions and, and, and life questions. I mean, those are, those are, you know, it's not just theological questions. Those are questions that, um, that, that are life application questions. And, and the church has to, if a church plant is going to make disciples, if the church plant is going to uh, evangelize their neighbors, they've got to have that, that, that question answered about what they believe. Um, also, so in terms of church plan, like when, when I plant this church, I not only want this generation of, of this, of this church, um, to, to, uh, to be healthy, you know, theologically and missionally speaking, but like, I want future generations of that church to, to be healthy too, you know? Um, and, and, and holding to a, a historic confession that has been around for centuries, um, can, can help guide future generations of the church and, and keep them tethered to, to the gospel that, that, that we profess. You know, um, there's, there's a, this church I used, I used to serve with, um, that, um, I mean, there's great people that I totally like love the pastors and the elders of this church. Um, but during my, uh, I was going through a pastoral candidacy at, at, at this particular church. And, um, I didn't, I didn't realize until, uh, my, my, my eldership candidacy started that there were actually um, like two tiers of elders. Um, like like I, I didn't understand that as a congregation, as, as a member of the congregation, but, but there were like two tiers of elders. There was like it, as soon as you're ordained, as, as you become an, an elder at, at, at the church, you're, you're, a, um, you're an elder. Like the first tier of elders like doesn't actually, doesn't actually vote. You know, like you, you, you serve and, and you participate, but you didn't actually have a vote. And when, when I discovered that, I, I, you know, I, I asked the senior pastor, like, well, why do you guys do it this way? And, and his answer was, um, well, you know, we, we love you guys. Ta- talking about me and the other, the other elder candidate. He's like, we love you guys. We want to serve along you guys. We want you guys to lead along, alongside us and serve this congregation alongside us. But, um, but he said, 
but you know, we, 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 we don't want you guys voting yet because, you know, we just want to get to know you more and, and understand like your, your doctrine, uh, to, 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 to make sure that, you know, future generations of, of the church are, 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 are protected. And so, um, like my, my thought to that was, well, how, how exactly is my doctrine being tested? You know, we have like 10 sentences on our church's statement of faith. And so what, what it really came, comes down to is, is, is what does this small group of men decide? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's, it's not, yeah. it's not a time tested, tested thing. And I like, I, I love, I love what Joe said in, in the first episode of this podcast. He's like, you know, if you want to write your own confession of faith, like you can try to do that, but you're probably not smart enough to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, so what, as it, when it comes to, to this, this church that Lord willing, we're going to plant, like, like we want a statement of faith that has stood the test of time. Like we want elders to be, um, tested according to this exhaustive, you know, if we want to call it that, like a doctrinal statement um, for, for the health of, of the church now, but also for the health of the church like, like 20, 30 years from now. And it, I, don't, I, don't want, uh, I, I don't want those, those decisions left to what, what does Chris believe, you know, or what do these, these three or four or five elders believe, but, you know, what, what does the church believe throughout the centuries? No, that's, that's really good. Let me let me ask you guys this question as we kind of move through this idea of planting confessional churches. What kind of training would be helpful for you guys as you move forward? What what, what are things that you would say, "Hey, this is essential if we're going to be healthy planters on the other end." I think I think some sort of residency program is um maybe I wouldn't say it's it's a requirement, but it is extremely, extremely valuable. Um, being able to uh, be in an existing church that has planted churches before or um, and, and being able to, to come underneath a group of elders and, and serve underneath them and for them to know your life and, and your struggles and, um, and your, your desires and your vision, all these different things. And as you're building a core team, core team to serve underneath those elders and to really come under authority of those elders. Um, I think within a residency or whatever, maybe it's an internship, whatever it may be, I think is extremely important. Having some sort of residency process, like under, under the, the, the leadership and, and shepherding of, of an existing church, uh, is extremely beneficial, um, for, for church planters and um, for new churches that 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 are starting um, on a, I, I guess like a, on a on a on a conf- confessional point, um, it, it'd be helpful. Like if you want to plan a confessional uh, church, then you know you need to get familiar with uh, the historic uh, creeds and, and confessions and, and catechisms of, of the church. Um, it would probably be helpful to to have. Like some some level of seminary training as as well, um, and and to study uh, you know church church history and uh, the, the the councils uh, of the church. Like how did these creeds, how did these confessions um, 
come to be? What purpose did they play in in in, in their historic setting? And and that can help us determine like what what role they they play in in our churches today. That's a great point because I think a lot of times the residencies that are done for planters is focused on uh, methods or it gets focused on fundraising. Mm-hmm. And the loss in that is the time that's set apart to really firm up one's doctrine, to really understand, okay, what do I believe the church is? What, what do I believe uh, about the church or how the church functions? What do I believe about uh, the work of Christ and how it benefits the church or, or the, or the walk of, of sanctification and holiness? I think those are all important points because let's, the bottom line is a church planner is still a pastor. He's still a shepherd, and he's raising up other shepherds around him to lead and protect and guide and feed sheep. And I think if he's not strong on the doctrine of Christ, if he's not strong on the doctrine of the church, um, there's going to be real problems, and you're going to be starting churches that are unhealthy. And so I'm a firm believer that residencies have to have more than just methodology, more Mm -hmm. than just fundraising, but doctrinal components. So I'm glad to hear you say that, Chris. Um, Another question I have for you guys as you kind of are walking through this is obviously uh, near and dear to my heart is the Confessional Collective, hence the Confessional Collective podcast. We uh, have a desire to see a network of churches, Presbyterian and Baptist and Lutheran and Anglican churches that are joining arm in arm and saying, we want to see confessional churches planted. And uh, we, we huddle around these Reformed confessions. And so I uh, often take people through the journey that the London Baptist Confession, right, it came from the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession had its roots in the Irish Articles, which really were an advanced strategy of the 39 Articles. And so really, in a lot of ways, we're all bonded together, if we're confessional, on a lot of those core tenets. And um, my question to you guys is, how can a network like the Confessional Collective help young planters as they're coming forward? What What are things that we can be doing um, that help you? That, that's a great question. Uh, you know, one of the things that really, really drew me to, to you, Aaron, and this Confessional Collective that you, you started is your robust commitment to both uh, historic confessional Christianity, but also just missional church planting. Um, and I think, just broadly speaking, um, you, you'll you'll see churches that, that 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 might be like one or the other, but not but not both. Um, in in my context, the the most doctrinally solid churches are not the most culturally engaged. Um, they there's more like in ingrown churches, you know. But on the other hand, like the churches that that are very evangelistic, that are great at at, at making. Disciples like good Orthodox churches that that are um, making um, legitimate disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ like are also like very um, very suspicious of of the need to to dive into doctrine and and to study theology. Um, you know they're more concerned about you know what what we the church should be doing rather than what what the church believes. Um, but but we we need both, and I think if you have a um, a, a good solid understanding of 
the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ as outlined throughout the Old and New Testament, then um, you will be propelled on mission to make disciples, to evangelize the nations, to, to, to plant churches in our communities. Um, and so w- one of the ways that um, I, the Confessional Collective has served me and that I, I hope will continue to serve me is, is, to, is um, through three resources and, and articles and podcasts like this, to, to help us see the, the happy marriage between those, those two sides and how they really can't be separated, they can't be divorced one from the other. JT? Yeah. Um, I think the, 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 one of the primary ways is um, through the content that is put out, um, whether it's the podcast, whether the, whether the articles. Um, and then and hopefully, I know Aaron, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but just um, hopefully as, it, as the network grows and, and you're able to have maybe even other co- cohorts um, popping up in different areas, maybe even different states, um, ha- being able to have a brotherhood of guys that, um, uh, I mean, when you go between the 39 Articles and the London Confessional and the, the Westminster, I mean, they're all very, very similar in their Reformed heritage. Um, and so being able to have a brotherhood of, of, of guys that all – for the for the most part um adhere to the same theological convictions and and are passionate about the same things and both that whole the whole passion and truth idea um that that you're you know you're you're seeking to to plant uh missional uh churches that are engaged in the culture exactly what chris said um but that are also um orthodox and historic and um and are believing things that have been believed for for years upon years have been tested and tried um but having a network um, of, of men where iron sharpens iron, we hold each other accountable to those things, um, to both seek mission and truth, um, as we attempt to, uh, evangelize lost, to disciple, um, believers and, and to, to really glorify God in everything we do. I think it's just a huge benefit. Guys, I thank you for your time, um, specifically on the topics of the confessional collective confessions, church planting, but just before we go, Chris, I want to talk just a few minutes about your book, uh, The Two Fears. And um, Two Fears is a book that was really heavy upon your heart. And I wanted you to share with the listeners why you wrote it. There was a, there was a time a few years ago that I was just meditating a lot on, on this, this, this concept of, you know, the fear of God and what the scriptures say about it. And, and um, you know, I think if, you, if we look around, though, we, we have to agree that, that most people – um, they probably would agree that we should like love God and we should should honor God, uh, but when it comes to the question on whether or not we should fear Him, I think a lot of people would say no, because you know the the Bible says perfect love casts out fear, and that's true. But the Bible also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of re- of wisdom, and so I kind of sought to, to to dig into that that concept and and say like how do we how do we reconcile that. And, and I think uh, like a good definition of, of fear, I think a, a biblical definition of fear is that when we fear something, we, we give credence to its power that it has over us. We, so when, when we acknowledge the power that, that God has over us, like that's what it means to fear him. And the Bible says that that's the beginning of wisdom. That's why, you know, when Job was suffering, and he was crying out, lamenting to God, saying, like, like, why is this happening to me? Like, what, what did I do? Like, why aren't you intervening? And God's answer to him is, you know, where were you when I created the universe? It wasn't, here's, 
here's my reason, you know, like Satan talked to me and, 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 and I'm proving a point, you know, you know like it, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that or, or it wasn't God's greater purpose for Job in that moment. God's answer was, where were you? Um, in other words, he was, he was pointing out, um, like the Lord was pointing out to, to, to Job, um, his power, his dominion, his majesty that he has over all creation. Um, you know, Bavink says that there's no such thing as an independent creature. Um, in, in other words, like we're made to acknowledge our, our mere creatureliness before a mighty creator. Um, it's, it's built into our DNA. That's what we were made for. And, that, and that's what the fear of God is. It's a humble trembling before his majesty. It's acknowledging his power, his majesty, his glory, his dominion that he has over us. And when we start there with that grand view of his, of his holiness and his, his otherness, when we rightly fear him in that way, then not only will we have a greater view of, of his might and power, but also of his grace and his love. We'll, have a heavier, we'll also have a heavier view of, of his strength and, and what that means when, when we know that that our strong God is, is our refuge and, and strength and also a father and, and, and friend. Um, if, we, if we don't ascribe to God rightly the power that he has over us, rightly fear him in that way, then um, what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross in absorbing the wrath, the holy wrath of God, um, on our behalf, um, like the beauty and the scandal of, of that gospel gets, gets diminished. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, you don't see a lot of books on the fear of God. And so I just kind of wanted to touch on, on that, on that topic. And I mean, it's short, it's like a hundred pages long, uh, sort of like an introduction to, to the fear of the Lord. Um, so, yeah. Gentlemen, I really appreciate your time today. I hope that this segment was beneficial to all of our listeners, as it was to me. Just, uh, It's so encouraging to be around guys who want to plant churches and guys that want to see the kingdom of Christ advanced, and especially when those churches uh, will be based upon the uh, historic creeds and confessions of our past. There's nothing like standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before. So I appreciate your work, fellas. Uh, everybody have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. And be sure to like our Facebook